You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's program of Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. You know, in the last two weeks, we've talked about first the uh, Democratic platform on health insurance and health insurance reform, health care reform, all those issues, and we are fairly critical. Last week, we talked about the Republican healthcare proposals, and we're fairly critical. I personally would like to see a lot more health insurance reform first and then feed into or complement that with health care reform because most people, I believe, are looking at their health insurance premiums and that's what's hitting their pocketbook. A lot of the health care expenses are being covered by insurance companies after deductibles and copays. So most individuals, I think, are more aware of their premiums and their cost-sharing features, both of which have been going up. And I know that the cost of health care underneath that drives the premiums, but I also believe there ought to be a lot more choice in the type of policies we have so that premium people can choose what it is they want and what they need. Just like the auto insurance advertisements you may see on TV, if you're not skipping through them, says buy only what you want. So today I want to talk along the same sort of political lines, since we're in the political season. And what I want to talk about today is the proposal and the idea that is going around very strong within at least the Democratic Party of Medicare for all or a public option that is basically a Medicare option. Well, you know, for most people in this country, especially those under 65, They don't know really what Medicare is. Now, they may have a parent or a relative or an aunt or uncle that's under Medicare, and they seem to like it. So what's the big deal? Well, let's talk about Medicare, what it is, what it's not, what it could be. And let's start with the process of how did Medicare, what are the roots of Medicare? How did it all start? Because it looks rather strange for those of us who have been in the working population and getting insurance from our employer or buying individual insurance policies, we don't have a Part A, a Part B, a Part C, a Part D. We have an entirely different type of coverage. It's structured differently. And I know insurance coverages are very complicated to people. So let's start back. Let's do a little bit of a history during this first segment of the program. Let's talk about how all this started because how it started is really important to understand where we are and how the government got so involved in providing Medicare uh, for the elderly. Well, how did it all start? Of course, the concept of insurance has been around for thousands of years of people sort of sharing, whether it's the cost of uh, some catastrophe or the cost of helping somebody with their crops or their house burns down. There there have been a lot of different ways that people have come together and, and, and shared those responsibilities. So if a catastrophe or a problem happens to one family, um, they don't wind up with the full cost of it. It's just neighborly to help out people, whether it's with your, your, uh, your uh, contributions of time, uh, contributions of materials, or even financial contributions. So I don't want to go too back far in time, 
but uh, 1910 and that sort of period of time, the early forerunners of what today is a Blue Cross healthcare plans appeared at what some would define as called prepaid group practices. Plan members paid a monthly premium and received a wide range of medical services through what some would call an exclusive group of providers. In other words, there's a small group of providers that says, you pay me a monthly premium and I'll give you these services. So this was really the precursor to our modern health insurance system, which uh, more formally began in the 1920s when hospitals began to offer their services on this concept that was referred to as a prepaid basis. Now, the Great Depression was a major influencer in the 1930s in the adoption of these insurance plans, these prepaid plans, because what was happening is that people were so poor, there was so much economic devastation from the Great Depression that people couldn't pay their health insurance, which they typically would pay out of pocket. They didn't have the money. And so what's widely considered to be the first employer-sponsored plan started with a group of teachers in Dallas, Texas. The teachers kind of joined together to create a program where they would agree to pay what would now be considered an insurance premium to Baylor Medical Hospital for future medical services. So they were prepaying, they were paying in advance a fixed amount of money to Baylor University Hospital so that if they were then hospitalized, uh, Baylor would be covering any costs that is, were associated with that hospital stay. In the case of the Baylor plan, between 1929 and 1930, the Baylor University system then in Dallas, Texas, saw its receipts drop from $236 to $59 per patient. So nearly an 80% drop, certainly a large decrease in the amount of money they were able to actually collect from patients that were coming through their doors. The occupancy rate also dropped from 70% to 60%. So people were paying less, nor were fewer people in the hospital. And so the total contributions to Baylor um, University Hospital were down by two-thirds or more. So they've tried to figure out, what do I do now? i got a poor population out there, can't pay, i got fewer people coming in. So these insurance plans were developed to give the hospital a steady stream of revenue. Even if it was less than what they would have expected in normal times, at least it was a steady stream that they could budget around. So in 1929, Blue Cross plans were established to provide this prepaid hospital care based on the prototype developed by the Baylor University in Dallas, Texas, by a guy named Justin Ford Kimball. He developed the prototype and the Blue plans, which are really hospital insurance plans, started to develop out of that model. And what was the cost? Well, you'll be surprised to hear this uh, given today's inflation rates, but the monthly rate was 50 cents. And if you adjust that amount for inflation to today, it's still only worth a little over $7 per month. A thousand percent increase, yet it pales in comparison with today's costs. Obviously, going to a hospital can be extremely expensive. So the Baylor plan was an immediate success. It soon was enrolling employees in 
other professions besides the teachers across the city. And this program later became known as Blue Cross. But that model spread to other hospitals. And by 1932, a plan was established in Sacramento, California. However, unlike the Baylor plan, which covered services only at that single hospital, the Sacramento plan covered services at any hospital in the community. And by 1933, 26 such hospital service plans were in operation. So there you could buy, do this prepaid plan for hospital stays, and you can go to any hospital that had developed this contract among other hospitals. So you weren't limited to just one hospital you could go to. So in just 10 years, enrollment in these plans grew from just under 1,300 covered lives to 3 million. Now, the major downfall of the teacher's plan, this Baylor plan, was that it only covered hospital services. So what happens next? Well, this is where Blue Shield comes into play. So now we have the history of Blue Cross and how it developed. Now Blue Shield comes into play. And it's a very similar story. Blue Shield concept grew out of the lumber and mining camps of the North Pacific Northwest at the turn of the century. Employers wanted to provide medical care for their workers and made arrangements with physicians who were paid a monthly fee for their services. These contracts led to the creation of a medical service bureau composed of groups of physicians. The first was really organized in Tacoma, Washington by Pierce County Physicians in 1917. So it started to grow when it saw the success of the Blue Cross type programs at Baylor. So in the 1930s, this group of California employers in the lumber and mining industry joined together to provide physician services to their employees. This plan developed into the National Association of Blue Cross Plans. As you can guess, the Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies ultimately merged and became the Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance companies that we know today. So both came about because the providers needed to get a fixed amount of money, a budgetable amount of money in from a population to ultimately provide their services. So this was before any real insurance companies came into being. But Blue Cross Blue Shield, when they combined both the hospital and the doctors, they came together and basically provide a fairly broad range of coverage that was being paid for. Now, how do we get to broader employer-based coverages? Well, again, started during the Depression years. In 1935, the National Labor Relations Act was the catalyst for employer-based health insurance. As it was now seen after the success of the Baylor and the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans was seen as an effective and valuable benefit for workers. So Blue Shield being the first medical service plan, it was analogous to those hospital service plans we talked about. It was established in 1939. So the plans had two key features. First, they required free choice of physician. And second, they were indemnity rather than service benefit plans. In other words, doctors got reimbursed out of this pool of money of premiums that were collected. The doctors got reimbursed for the amount of services that they were providing. So Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies began to empower more working Americans to access the healthcare system. Some for the first time in their lives. 
So we have an awful lot going on here. Now, there's a similar beginning to health maintenance organizations. I'm not going to go into the same kind of detail, but similarly, HMOs started in the 1930s as well and grew to be ultimately the Kaiser plans, the Kaiser Permanente. The Permanente were the physicians, and ultimately they were cast out among uh, physicians being able to use certain hospitals, and so they went out and bought their own hospitals. So the doctors said, I can't get into your hospital, I'll buy my own. So it ultimately became the health maintenance organization, and you can go and get your care there. Well, then something happened after 1930. We had World War II. And I want to get into the impact, the dramatic impact of what happened during the World War II period that really exploded the employee benefit uh, coverages in the healthcare arena. So let's take a quick break, and I want to come back, and we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to get into how this ultimately developed into Medicare and both the problems and issues, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So hang with me, and we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Healthcare Insight. This week, we're talking about Medicare and the beginnings of Medicare, the beginnings of insurance, so that we can understand what Medicare for all or a government single-payer system is or a government option that provides basically a Medicare option that ultimately will grow into a, a Medicare for all. So I think it's important that we understand. Now, I know sometimes history lessons can be boring with just dates and figures, but in this case, if you really want to understand what Medicare for all is or what those options would be, um, we need to really understand more about what Medicare Part A, Part B, Part C, Part D, all that confusion goes on. Most elderly people think it's a great program, but you know maybe they don't know what it could be. Maybe they don't understand the differences between when you turn 65, you forced to go under this program called Medicare, and yet you lose all your benefits that you had from your employer that uh, when you retired, and the coverages are so different. I mean, a lot of people really don't want to look at their policy and read their policy, so just hang with me a little bit, understand this, and we'll really get into some of the reasons why Medicare is designed and developed uh, the way it is and why it has significant flaws. So, so far in the earlier segment, we talked about the development through the 1920s, 1930s, and how insurance started to develop as a concept to pay hospitals and then pay physicians a fixed amount of money in order to get the services whenever you would need it. So it's not that I get sick, now i got to go to my bank account and, and drain it to pay for the services. Uh, they were buying what they called prepaid uh, coverages, and uh, this basically was insurance. So what happened? Well, after the um, World War II, or even during World War II, the federal government was weary of post-war inflation. The administration saw the terrible dis dis devastation that hyperinflation wrecked on post-World War I Germany, and they were determined to hold it at bay through wage and price controls, which they instituted during the war. 
So keep in mind now, we got wage and price controls during World War II. So in reaction to the wage controls, many labor groups plan to go on strike en masse. In order to avert the strike, a concession was made to the labor groups. The War Labor Board exempted employer-paid health benefits from wage controls and income tax. That's where it all starts. If you ever hear somebody say, well, this all started back by an accident, World War II. Well, it wasn't an accident. It was demand of the public, the labor unions in particular, because there were wage and price controls in place. They wanted to add benefits that would not count against that. So in some ways, you can call it a historical accident, but it created a tax advantage that drove an enormous demand for employer-provided health benefit and insurance plans over the previously more common individual health insurance programs. That's where it was before, as individuals were paying these prepaid fees to hospitals and doctors. But now we've got an employer-provided system because of the exemption from wage and price controls during World War II. Employers received 100% tax deduction, while the benefits employees received were exempt from federal, state, and city taxation. So it was a great deal for the employees. Well, by 1955, obviously after the war, the spread of health insurance coverage went from less than 10% of the population having some sort of coverage like this in 1940, it grows to nearly 70% of people that would have health insurance in this way. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans and their logo became ubiquitous icons in both homes and medical offices across America. So it became the dominant form of health insurance in the 1950s. Congress then also acted the Federal Employee Benefit Act in 1959. And the Blues responded with the creation of our employee, Federal Employee Health Benefit Program. So what you're having here in 1959 is the employees of the federal government got together and the Congress said, we're going to give you health insurance benefits like they saw growing around the rest of the country. So the Blue Cross programs got involved with that program because they were the dominant insurer anyway at that point. And today, the program covers more than 4.8 million federal employees, retirees, and their families. So that leads us up to the early 1960s. Well, what happened in 1964 and 65? Well, we had President Johnson's Great Society programs. And he decided that older folks needed to have an assurance of health insurance when they got off their job because many people were getting their coverage through their employer. Well, what happens when they retire? We need to have some sort of government program for the elderly. And the Great Society program gave great benefit to helping people at the low end of the economic cycle. So Medicaid coverage for the poor was also enacted. So in 1964-65, when the Civil Rights Acts and the Great Society Acts were being passed, uh, Medicare and Medicaid were enacted. And the government selected Blue Cross Blue Shield companies to team up with and to successfully administer the Medicare program. 
So you can see all this kind of work together after the development in the early stages of Blue Cross Blue Shield and then the expansion of employer coverage and then the government getting involved and saying we need to have coverage for the elderly and for the poor. Blue Cross Blue Shield was there. They were well positioned. They had decades of experience in processing claims. And so the government selected them to administer this new Medicare program. So in 1964, more than 19 million individuals enrolled under the new Medicare legislation. So we had this whole spectrum of things that are going on. Now, why did they choose Blue Cross Blue Shield? Well, they were the administrators. But now what kind of plan would they choose? Well, the only thing the government knows is Blue Cross Blue Shield. Blue Cross, hospital, Blue Shield, physician. So they put together a program for Medicare that has a Part A and a Part B. And guess what the relationship is there? Blue Cross, hospital, was the Part A. Blue Shield, the physicians, and Part B. Now, what kind of coverage was that? Is that the kind of coverage that we have today? Comprehensive major medical plan with unlimited lifetime maximums with a deductible and a coinsurance? No. That was not the kind of coverage that was available in 1964. The type of coverage that was available in 1964 was something that today and even then was called basic insurance. Now, we might have a different definition of basic today than they had back then, but back then what basic meant is that you got so many days covered in a hospital stay. You got so many surgeries identified with a dollar amount attached to the surgery, whether it was a broken arm, whether it was a brain injury, whether it was um, uh, something for your heart, whatever the surgery was, there was a scheduled list of those items that were covered and the amount of money, the maximum amount that we paid out for each of those individual diagnoses. But most importantly, from the hospital side, it said, we're going to cover you for the first 30 or 60 days. Now, that kind of coverage was provided by Blue Cross Blue Shield. But as we moved through the 1960s and into the early 70s, that was the coverage that all insurance companies that had been developing as competition for Blue Cross Blue Shield, offered basic coverage. But then technology took over, and costs started to go up very rapidly after the 1970s. And so while companies had sold that same kind of basic, limited, structured, scheduled coverage that Blue Cross had, most employers went beyond that with the recognition of the higher cost that technology was bringing to healthcare. And they offered what was referred to at the time supplemental major medical. So you had your basic coverage, but then if you had really high costs from these new um, technologies and services and hospital stays, uh, you got a deductible that applied between that basic coverage and the supplemental major medical which would cover you to a million dollars or 250000 at the time, some lower number occasionally, but many of them were up to a million dollars. So look at it this way. There's an old saying, legislation tends to crowd out the future. What happens with Medicare 
is that they locked in the plan design in 1964 that was then available from Blue Cross Blue Shield and paralleled that Blue Cross Blue Shield plan of 1964. Do you think Blue Cross Blue Shield offers that same kind of design to their employers today? The answer is no, they don't. They, in the marketplace, expanded the coverage in the same way that every other employer did, that during the 1970s, they added supplemental major medical on top of their basic plan. And then ultimately, both Blue Cross and all the other insurance companies, when you get into the 80s and 90s, wound up combining the basic with supplemental major medical, and that's what we call today comprehensive major medical plan, where there's a deductible up front, there's a coinsurance up to a certain amount of limit, and then your insurance coverage covers up to an unlimited amount. So you can see the problem developing right there. If you follow this history, you can see the problem that developed. Blue Cross Blue Shield was a great organization that started all this. They have a fantastic history, and they were always sort of the insurer of last resort. So I don't blame Blue Cross Blue Shield. They actually evolved with the times. They evolved with the employer interests and demands. They evolved with the technology of medical care. But what hasn't evolved is Medicare itself, because legislation at the federal level in particular crowds out the future, which means it limits the ability to change, adapt, and modernize. And so we really haven't had a modernization at all of the basic coverage of A and B. Now, I want to come back in a minute after this next commercial break. I want to talk about the continuing problems of just having an A and B for hospitals and doctors and then talk about how at least trying to keep up with some parts of our evolution of healthcare, parts C and D were enacted. And also Medicare Advantage. So we've got a lot to talk about yet. Come back and join us after this next commercial break. And I think this whole development and leading up to Medicare and today's offer of a government option or Medicare for all, how it'll start to make a lot more sense if you've been following this discussion. Be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're doing a little bit of a history lesson as a buildup to really understanding what Medicare is all about, how it got to be where it is, and why it's outdated relative to the healthcare that you get from an employer, or even the healthcare that you can buy as an individual. So we talked about the buildup from the 30s and growth in the 40s, and then the change in tax law during World War II that encouraged employers to provide these tax benefits. So what we know in 1960, we had another step for the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan for federal employees. So we saw the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans grow. They had like 52 million members under Blue Cross and 40 million members under Blue Shield back then. And then the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan was created that allowed federal employees to choose their health coverage. And they chose consistently the Blue Cross Blue Shield program, the combined program time and time again. 
Before the first open enrollment in 1960, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Benefit Program already enrolled 33% of federal employees. And so it continues to grow from there. There's more competition today as companies like United and Aetna and even the Blue Cross, which used to be sort of a um, an association of localized state-structured insurance programs, many of them have split off and gone from a not-for-profit to a for-profit status. So even some of the Blues are crossing their own uh, previous boundaries and competing against each other. So there's a lot more competition to the Blues than used to be. There's not as much competition as probably ought to exist across the market because there's been a consolidation of some of the uh, for-profit companies. But you can see what's happened here in the time frame that Medicare was established. And it was established in 1964. And the model that was available was really the Blue Cross Blue Shield model. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield model in 1964, pre all the technology and life-saving capabilities of hospitals and doctors that have really run up the cost of healthcare, saves lives. So we're happy with that. You know, we'd like the cost to be lower, but the enormous advancement in life-saving and health-saving recovery issues that are available today is just enormous versus where we were in 1964. But in 1964, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, hospital and doctor, that was the model that other insurance companies paralleled as well. And it was really just hospitals and doctors because prescription drugs was not a big part of the Medicare program. So in order for the government under Medicare, which is coverage for the elderly when you turn 65, uh, you're um, eligible to become covered under Medicare. Under Medicare, the design was structured to parallel that Blue Cross Blue Shield program. So how do you do that? Well, under that, the Part A, which is the hospital or Blue Cross, it's called the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund that finances that. And it's financed primarily through a dedicated payroll tax of 2.9% of earnings that's paid by employers and their employees. So it's 1.45% each. That's how it's funded. Now, in 1913, these taxes accounted for about 88% of the $251 billion of revenue into the Part A trust fund. And you'll hear that sometimes in the media, the the health insurance or the Medicare trust fund. It's really just part A is the trust fund. Now, another thing happened in 2013, and that is the um, Medicare um, payroll tax increased by 0.9 percentage points from 1.45% to 2.35% for higher income taxpayers. Those earning more than $200,000 for an individual and $250,000 for married couples. So it added more money to the trust fund to keep it solvent longer. This was part of the tax bill that was put in during the um, Obama administration that increased taxes on the wealthier population. Uh, They got no additional benefit from it because Medicare is going to cover everybody in the same way in terms of the benefits, 
but it allowed um, more funding to flow into the Medicare trust fund to keep it stabilized and increased uh, the taxes uh, for the Medicare benefit uh, only on the um, on the more wealthy um, members of, of the country. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about what coverage is under Part A and Part B, So, but I want to talk about how it's paid for and sort of in a broad sense, it's for hospitalization. Now, we'll talk about the deductibles and some different options under Part A besides uh, the brick-and-mortar hospitals that you may see in your community. There's some other options there, but under Part B now, Let's talk about that. That's to cover physicians. And that's technically called, just as the hospital was called, the hospital insurance or HI trust fund. The Part B for physicians is usually referred to as the supplemental medical insurance or SMI. That's the SMI trust fund. And it's financed through a combination of different things, whereas the Part A is financed mainly through the uh, taxes uh, that we're talking about on the, the payroll taxes. The Part B is really a combination of general revenues, premiums paid by beneficiaries because there is a premium that's requested uh, if you're covered under Part B. And there's other minor sources of interest and um, and other sources that go into that. Now, premiums are automatically set by law. The premiums that we as individuals pay when we become covered under Medicare, the premiums we pay are automatically set to cover 25% of the spending in the aggregate. And the general revenues subsidize 73%. So that adds up to 98%. So there's another 2% that comes from interest and some other sources that can come in there. But Part B for physicians is covered to a large degree at least 25% by um, by premiums, and the 73%, the vast majority, is covered by general revenues. So there's no trust fund involved there because general revenues are going to subsidize most of the cost of the physician coverage under Part B. Now, higher income beneficiaries pay a larger share of the spending and because it's – coming from premiums, and the premiums are based upon your income. So it can range anywhere from 35% to 80% of the Part B costs that you might otherwise have. And the Part B revenue uh, in 2013, which is one of the the, uh, last numbers that um, uh, was available in the study I'm I'm referencing to, the Part B revenue totaled about $255 billion. So we have about the same amount equal amounts going to hospitals and doctors, uh, at least as of uh, the last numbers I had there from 2013. Now, there's something else that developed over time, and it developed in uh, 2006, and that is the Medicare Part D. Now, we skipped over C, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So it goes A, B, and now we're going to talk about D. D is for prescription drugs. And it's a little bit complicated because there are some options to get out of covering the Part D if you get something from your employer. But without getting into the weeds there, Part D is financed through general revenues. There's some beneficiary premiums and state payments for duly eligible, in other words, Medicare and Medicaid, duly eligible beneficiaries. 
who received drug coverage under the Medicaid program prior to 2006. The monthly premium paid by enrollees is set to cover about 25.5% of the cost of standard drug coverage, and Medicare subsidizes the remaining 74.5%. Similar to Part B, higher income beneficiaries pay a larger share of the cost of standard drug coverage. In 2013, Part D revenue totaled about $70 billion, 73% of which was from the general revenue and 14% from premiums, and 13% from state payments. So you can see now, even though Medicare was locked into a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan of 1964, it took until 2006 or later to actually cover prescription drugs because prescription drugs was not a part of healthcare, a significant part of healthcare. In 2000 or in, um, in 1964, whereas it became a bigger part as we went along. People expecting a pill, a medication, a drug, something to alleviate the pain or to, to create a cure. And so prescription drugs became a, a big deal. Now, prescription drugs came into play really under the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003, which was passed in uh, in December of 2003. And the way that worked is that it was put into a bill that was necessary but couldn't get through Congress because there was no real funding mechanism to uh, keep the deficit from going up. And so there wasn't a lot of support for it. But the reality, ultimately, of the Republicans was that there was two things. And I won't get into the second thing too much, except to say that the uh, health savings account legislation was attached to that. It had nothing to do with Medicare. In fact, if you're under Medicare, you can't contribute into a health savings account. But like many things in Washington, something was attached to this that, if it was going to pass, would um, would get passed along with it. And that was so important to Republicans and the realization that, if you have prescription drugs, which people had in their employer plan all these many years now, and all of a sudden you turn 65 and the federal government says, I'm sorry, we're not going to have prescription drug coverage for you anymore. You're on the wrong side of history. And I think politicians realize they'd probably be voted out of office if they didn't support prescription drugs under Medicare. But look how long it took for even that to be put in to the Medicare program from 1964 to 2004, 40 years before prescription drugs would be included when most employer plans, most insurance company plans had included it for the previous 30 years. So you can see how legislation tends to crowd out the future or make it difficult to get to the future. This is the point of why Medicare while many people think it is a good coverage, it's helpful because they couldn't get anything otherwise, is not what it could be. And I want to come back in the next segment and talk about what Medicare could be and how it could be much better with very little additional cost, if any, on how the program can really be changed. So join me for the last section, and we'll wrap this thing up so you'll have a great understanding of what Medicare really is all about and what the government might be proposing as we move down for everybody. So you better understand it now 
because it may be coming your way. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight. Today we're talking about the background, the history, the development of how Medicare got to where it is. Most people don't know that it was passed in 1964 and was based off the model of Blue Cross Blue Shield. Many people don't even know who aren't covered by Medicare that it's got this Part A, Part B, Part C, Part D as possibilities. They just think it's insurance like you might have from an employer. Well, that's not the case. And so what I want to try to do today in this final segment is talk about what kind of coverage it really is and what it could be. Let's take the Part A hospital part. It's separate and distinct from physician part. So it's not like your employer plan where all your claims go into one pot and you have a deductible that applies to everything and then you've got a coinsurance that applies to everything and then all your claims after that are covered at 100% after your maximum out-of-pocket costs. Part A under Medicare has a deductible insurance of its own. So let's talk about the Part A deductible. There are various parts to it, and I'm going to talk about the 2020 amounts of deductible because these things are inflation-adjusted, and they'll go up. So if you go into the hospital, the hospital deductible for Part A, Part A covers the inpatient hospital, has coverage for skilled nursing facilities, and some home, home health services. But about 99% of Medicare beneficiaries do not have a Part A premium since they have at least 40 quarters of Medicare-covered employment. So if you've been working in the United States and you have 40 quarters or 10 years of coverage, um, you don't have to pay any premiums for the Part A. It's automatically covered when you turn age 65. You really have no choice. Now, the Part A inpatient hospital deductible that beneficiaries will pay when admitted to a hospital in 2020 is $1,410. That's an increase of $44 from 2019. The Part A inpatient deductible covers beneficiary costs for the first 60 days of Medicare-covered inpatient hospital care in a benefit period. So, that deductible covers you for 60 days. So if you stay anything less than 60 days, there's no additional hospital costs. It's just that initial $1,408 in 2020. If you stay after 60 days in 2020, beneficiaries must pay a coinsurance of about $352 per day for the 61st through the 90th day of hospitalization. And Medicare includes an additional 60 days of what they call lifetime reserve days. And you'd pay $704 per day if you're using up any of your 60 lifetime days. So you have a maximum number of days in the hospital of 150 days. Now, nobody under age 65 has a limit like that, but that's similar to the type of limit you would have had in 1964 when Medicare was put into law. Now, 
There's no reason that you can't have coverage. It's very little cost, if any, to go beyond that. If you buy a Medicare supplement policy, which a high percentage of Medicare beneficiaries purchase, one of the very first things it does is cover 365 days. So you don't have to worry that you might use up your hospital days and then have a cost of $704 per day for your 60 lifetime days or that even $352 a day for those 30 days between day 61 and day 90. Now, I got to tell you that Medicare supplement products are something that I developed. I'm not particularly proud of it, but I worked for a company that has an actuary and they had me develop that product. And we marketed it. We marketed a lot of it. But as an actuary, instead of just staying in the back office doing calculations and numbers, I insisted in the role that I played as an actuary and a manager, I wanted to go out to the field and see how these products were sold. And I have to tell you, to my shock, and one of the reasons I got out of that part of the business was that the agents out there would go through this process and then play on the fear of the elderly by saying, okay, what if your spouse is in a hospital for 250 days? How are you going to be able to afford that? Well, nobody stays in a hospital for 250 days, and I'll give you another reason why that would be covered anyway. But is that fear that drives the elderly because the greatest fear of older people is outliving their assets. And nobody wants to go bankrupt from health care costs if you're covered under Medicare. So they buy these policies that are not really very good and don't and are unnecessary. We could have government coverage if we're going to have Medicare under the structure. It should cover 365 days. And I'll tell you why. Because hospitals are reimbursed on something called a DRG. A diagnosis-related group. So when you're admitted to a hospital and given a diagnosis, the federal government reimburses the hospital a fixed amount of money. And if the hospital can get you out faster than the average number of days calculated in that payment, the hospital actually benefits from the efficiencies that they provide. And if they can't, the patient stays longer, then the hospital loses based upon the average number of days that that payment is based upon. But what if somebody actually stayed 250 days? Does that mean the hospital is out all that expense? Of course not. Lobbyists and associations that are strong have created a loophole. So that if somebody stays a very long period of time, they're considered to be an outlier. And outliers get reimbursed differently. They don't just get that fixed DRG payment. They get an outlier payment. And that outlier payment is very lucrative to hospitals. So all you'd really have to do is lower that formula for the outliers and then cover everybody for 365 days, and nobody would really need a Medicare supplement policy because that's the driving force for Medicare supplement is the Part A. Now, there are some other benefits, as I mentioned. You can you have some um, skilled nursing and some home health care services that are under there, but they also have deductibles. You don't have a different deductible for using skilled nursing in your employer-based plan. So why do you have a separate deductible for that? It should all be combined a single deductible. Now, let's talk about Part B. Part B 
is for your physicians. And Part B has a deductible in it as well for the doctors. Now, you don't have a Part B deductible in your own health insurance plan if you're working and have an employer's uh, subsidized health insurance plan. So you have a different deductible on top of these Part A deductibles, and then you pay 80%. The, the plan pays 80%. You pay 20% as a beneficiary of all the additional costs after the deductible. The deductible is, I don't have it in front of me here, but it's $150, $200 maybe. But that means that you're open and exposed to 20% of all of your doctor bills. You don't have that in an employer plan. You have 20% until you reach a maximum out-of-pocket cap. There's absolutely no reason that Medicare couldn't have a cap as well. It should have a cap. Whether that cap is 2500 5000 even 10000 you have to have a cap because nobody wants to be exposed to that unlimited amount of, ex- of expense as a beneficiary. So while most people don't get really sick or get into some of these really high-cost areas, even the elderly don't until the end of life, There's no reason why Medicare can't provide the same kind of level of security and benefits and limitation on the out-of-pocket expenses for the elderly the same way employers do before age 65. But why don't we do that? Because legislation is hard to change once it's locked in. It's like it's in granite. You can't make changes to it because you have to get a consensus, and there's always somebody who doesn't like what's going on, they don't want that change, or somebody says that's too expensive. Well, that reform to Medicare isn't going to be that expensive. It shouldn't be that expensive. I've done the numbers. I've talked to the actuaries at the federal government, and it wouldn't cost that much. But why why don't we do it? What's the alternative? The alternative is something called Medicare Advantage, and that's part C, if you will, of Medicare. It was something that's it's part C and then the prescription drugs are part D. And the real reason for that is that C became first, C came first, the Medicare Advantage program came first and before the prescription drugs are put in. So the Medicare Advantage program, uh, people can pick various programs, HMOs, PPOs, and they cover all the same things that Medicare does. It's just a private market version. And the government pays the private insurance company the amount of money that it would otherwise be spending under Medicare. So some calculations and some some number crunching that goes on. But Medicare Advantage is not Medicare. It's actually an alternative to Medicare. But every Medicare beneficiary uh, can check out and see if they want to move into the Medicare Advantage where you have the major insurance companies offering it up as an, as an alternative. And what do they normally do under Medicare Advantage? They cover the 365 days. They cover um, physician costs. Some some of them even add vision care and dental care. It depends upon your community because the private market can do it so much more efficiently. They can take the money from the federal government for the average cost and then add additional benefits, in many cases with no premium, in other cases with lower premiums. So I hope you get the sense that Medicare can be improved. We don't have to have a separate avenue of Medicare Advantage. We can actually improve the entire program of Medicare if only we can get the politicians together to actually consider that. There's so many things that can be done 
The elderly love Medicare, but they don't know what it could be. And if Medicare was to be expanded to the entire population, surely we would make the changes I've just alluded to. But I don't think most politicians would actually go there because they really don't understand health insurance or health care for the elderly. I hope that somewhere along the way, somebody might listen to this. Some politician in Washington, some presidential candidate can actually listen to this and recognize that Medicare, as it was designed in 1964, and we're forced to take it even today, 50 years later, that it's like making people buy a 1964 Chevrolet in today's marketplace that has heated seats, has better engines, has air conditioning, radios, all the bells and whistles that you would want in a, in a modern-day vehicle, but yet the government says, no, I'm sorry, you're going to have to buy a 1964 Chevrolet because that's all that's offered and that's all that's in the law that allows you to buy. There's got to be a different approach to offering up services to the elderly. Well, I hope that was a good education on the whole spectrum from beginning to end and why we've got Medicare where it is and the dangers of moving forward and even offering up to the general public Medicare for all without making significant changes to it that actually would benefit the consumer. Adding HSAs to Medicare, allowing HSA contributions to be continued once you're eligible for Medicare so that even people who are under Medicare can control their own costs, can direct their own dollars, can pay for things that maybe are outside of Medicare. So please, re-listen to this if you want to and understand some of the nuances in here that I'm talking about, some of the history, but I hope this was enjoyable. And we'll talk to you next week from America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.